go ahead and read to you. It's the power of God's Word. Children in kindergarten through second grade. I was trying to work, save some time by working myself up through them. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. You should have your text in your order of worship. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let us pray. Father, I pray even now that as we consider... um, the second to last sermon on the book of Revelation, at least this year, I pray that you would would just come and open our eyes, that you would give us encouragement, that you would give us both uh, conviction but also grace. I pray um, that you would tie things together for us as well. I pray for myself that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. You know, at our house we have lots of of Christmas traditions that we do and lots of things that my daughters expect to do. One of the things that we do that's fun is um, that Judy, my wife, reads sits around and reads to the whole family stories. You know, like the the boy who wanted a the puppy who wanted a boy and the, the three trees. And she reads all these stories except for one. There's one story that's reserved for me, and that of course is the Grinch who's still Christmas. And I always thought it was reserved for me because I did the voices best. But in reality, I think it's because my children like to, to, to watch me crack. In other words, they, they know exactly the page, exactly what part that I'm going to start breaking down and crying. And yesterday was I was reading, I even heard one of the kids going, wait for it, wait for it. <laughs> And then I started reading and I got choked up and she said, and there it is, right there. And what gets me every time is almost the end. If you remember the, the story of the Grinch, he's a Grinch. I mean, he's, he's a mean person, right? He's a ruthless crocodile. His heart is two sizes too small, and he knows that every year the Who's down in Whoville have this great thing called Christmas, and they all enjoy it, and they're happy, but he's not happy, and so what he's going to do is he's going to ruin Christmas for them. And so, you know, he goes, I don't know if it's one of the most popular Christmas specials because of the music or because of the pity. You have a Max, remember his little dog with one antler? And he goes down to Whoville, and he steals everything. He doesn't even leave a crumb that's big enough for a mouse in anyone's house. He gets busted by little Cindy Lou Who, and then he lies to her. And then he goes back up the mountain, and he just waits, because he knows when Christmas morning comes that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and he's just delighted, standing there waiting on the edge of the precipice, and something happens instead of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You remember? He hears singing instead. It says, Every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming, it came. 
Somehow or other, it came just the same. And here's the part that gets me every time. Wait for it. (laughs) And the Grinch with his Grinch beat ice cold in the snow stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. Remember, he goes racing down to Whoville. And you know that the, the Grinch's heart has been won, besides the fact that it grows three sizes, is that he himself cuts the roast beast. He hates it. Not then. And what's it got to do with this? We've been looking at the book of Revelation for for a year now. And as I read this story to my kids and I was thinking about this sermon, it, it hit me, honestly, that as I've been preaching through the book of Revelation, that it's been life-changing for me. I mean, if, if it's been good for you, that's great. But for me, it's been life-changing. And here's why. It's because I, by nature, by personality type, and even by military training, am a Grinch. I think for me, it takes almost every fiber of my being not to constantly look for the worst case scenario in anything that is happening at any given time and to to think constantly negatively about these things. And as I read the Grinch yesterday and saw that his heart was changed, his heart was changed and it was because he heard people singing. When we look at the book of Revelation, what we see is that you really, at the end of the day, you don't need to be a Grinch. You don't need to be worst case scenario because what you see in the book of Revelation is over and over again is the best case scenario. And it's not just the best case scenario that might happen. It's the best case scenario that is promised to those who have been followers of Jesus. And so for me, honestly, when I get into a mode where I'm starting to be cynical, I've caught myself saying, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh-uh. You stand up in front every week and say, Jesus will win, and Jesus has won, and he's winning right now. Who are you to be cynical? And so as we continue, we're going to finish the book of Revelation next week. This week, in some sense, is the last sermon um, that has to do with like the material. Next week, it's sort of like epilogue. And so this week, I'm warning you right now, I have to go through the whole Bible. It will take till about three, I think. <laughs> In all seriousness, I have to look at the whole Bible this morning. The text that I just read to you was about Eden being restored. You see, if you look, what's cool, at least in my Bible, is we're literally today going to spend our time in the very last page of my Bible and the very first page of my Bible. You see, we've talked before several times about the approach that we're looking at when, as we came at Revelation. We started, you know, a year ago. And, and what I mean by approach is, like, how, how do we read it? Is there something that informs us? And some people... When they read the book of Revelation, they come at it with this, uh, so what's called a preterist view. And a preterist says everything in Revelation just happened in the past. Other people come at it with a futurist view, where they say almost everything in the book of Revelation is going to happen in the future. You have historicist view, which says everything in the book of Revelation is happening right now. And then you have the idealist view, who says, I'm not sure what's happening but it's got some application spiritually. And what we've tried to do is look at it from what I call a gospel-centered view. In other words, it's the book of Revelation, just like every other book in the Bible, by the way, is an exposition of the person and work of Jesus. 
even more the book of Revelation because it, sent, it summarizes and brings things together. And so we not only look at it from a gospel-centered view, but the book of Revelation is just one part of a big story that the Bible is t- telling us. The, the story started in Genesis, and it finishes in the book of Revelation. And the whole story is about one person, and that's Jesus. The story starts with creation in a garden, and the story ends with new creation and a new garden. And so this morning, that's what we have to look at in order, I think, to understand how the book of Revelation ends. I have an outline this morning that has only one point, which I don't know if that would be considered an outline or just a sentence, but either way, the outline is this. It's either, either what we're going to be talking about is the restoration of Eden or the completion of God's temple. The restoration of Eden or the completion of God's temple because they, those two things are one and the same. I hope that's clear to you by the end. So if you start at the beginning, if you opened your Bible, the first sentence you would read was, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? And the earth was formless and void and all that kind of stuff. And in the beginning God created everything, and then he created a garden called Eden, and he placed a person in there named Adam. Now Eden, by the way, was God's first temple. And Adam was the first priest. Eden was God's first temple. If you define temple by the place where God dwells. Remember we've talked about in Revelation that the goal of the whole Bible is to to restore the relationship of humanity and God so that they might dwell in his presence forever. And in Eden, that was the original place where God would dwell with humanity. And Adam was placed in the garden as a priest king. And we know that primarily. There are lots of places in the Bible, by the way, well, several places, that actually refer to Eden as God's sanctuary. Ezekiel is one that comes to mind. And so how do we know that that Eden was really God's first temple? And I think the easiest way to, to, to discern that is by just looking at the mandates that were given to Adam. Now, what were the mandates given to Adam you don't need to turn there in your Bible. From Genesis 2.15, I'm going to call this a priestly mandate. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. And in most of your Bibles, it says he put man in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, it would be just as valid to translate the, the words work it and keep it to worship and obey, or to translate them to serve and to guard. So the Lord God uh, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to worship and obey, or to serve it and to guard it. All of those words, by the way, are priestly language. In other words, they're, they're words that are used to describe priests in the Old Testament. And not just priests, but it's to describe the way they relate to the temple and the tabernacle. So what the priests are supposed to do with the temple is to work it and to keep it. They're supposed to worship and obey. They're supposed to serve it and to guard it. And we'll see in a few minutes that Adam didn't do too well guarding the original temple. That something unclean got in there that he, that he lost to. So the priestly mandate basically says this, is that Adam was, placed, was called to steward the place of God's presence. In other words, he's put in the garden God, where God's presence was, and he was called to steward it or manage it, to take care of it. That, that was his job. But he was also uh, called to serve there. He was called to guard it. Now, in the Old Testament, what, what are priests called? They're called to guard the temple from any unclean animal that approaches or any uh, unclean person that comes. They're actually supposed to destroy it, to slay it, before it comes in the temple and defiles it. So Adam, at first, was called to steward the place of God's presence. And then you have this kingly mandate. 
from Genesis 1.28 that says, he says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, why is that a kingly mandate? Because the language is, is that of, of conquest in some sense. And he says to Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So from that language, what we know, among other things, is that God's intent was never that Adam just lived in the Garden of Eden and, and sort of laid, was just laid back and never did anything. That he started in the Garden of Eden, but in fact, he was, the God's intention was that Adam would extend God's presence throughout the rest of the world. He tells him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Part of the way we know that too is because in the ancient Near East, in every place but Christianity, when a, when a religion built a temple, they put images of their God in that temple. In Christianity, Judaism, you notice they never do that. Why? It's because you are that image. You see, Eden was the original temple, and God did put his image in there, just like the other people would do. And what he's telling them is, Adam, your job is to be fruitful and multiply and to expand my presence to all of creation by actually having my images be placed all over the place. In other words, in the kingly mandate, Adam was called to extend the scope of God's presence. In other words, the priestly mandate, he was called to take care of the place of God's presence, and the, the kingly mandate, he was called to expand the scope of God's presence. Here's what that looks like. Another way to look at it. So if you think, if you have the earth and you have Eden and you have the garden in the center of the Eden, that what Adam was called to do was to, to work the garden and keep it and to gradually expand it until this happened. That starting in the Garden of Eden, as Adam worked it and kept it and increased, was fruitful and multiplied, the, the God's presence as represented in Eden would continue to expand until it eventually filled all of the earth. And when you get to the book of Revelation, you see exactly what happened. That, that God's presence, you don't need a temple in the book of Revelation because in the book of Revelation, uh, God is the temple. His presence is everywhere. His creation is, is filled with him. And so we start out with Eden as God's temple. And then that naturally begs the questions, well, how did that work out? How did that work out for Adam? Well, remember Adam was placed in the garden and he was given a wife and basically was given the positive mandates, be fruitful, multiply, and then also to um, work the garden and to keep it. But he's given the negative mandate, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you remember what happened? Right? The serpent came and deceived Eve, and she persuaded Adam to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam fell. And in that fall, among other things, that was a priestly failure, because the serpent would have been unclean. And so here Adam is coming face to face with something that is threatening the sanctuary, that's threatening God's presence, where his presence dwells, and Adam's job would have been to destroy it. And instead of destroying the serpent, Adam was destroyed by the serpent. And I can't imagine being Adam because there was a tremendous fallout from, from the fall. Remember what happened? God starts dispensing punishment. And as he's dispensing punishment, he says to the serpent, you know, the, the heel, the woman, seed of the woman will crush your head and the serpent will strike your heel. And then to the woman, he says, you'll have pain and childbearing. And I just always think of Adam. I empathize because when I, when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time in the principal's office. And when I was a kid, you, got, you could get spankings. Mr. Walker had a big stick with holes in it. And you always wanted to be, if you got in some kind of scuffle or fight, you always wanted to be the first person in Mr. Walker's office, not the last person. 
Because there's nothing worse than sitting out with a row of kids and hear weeping and wailing coming from the, the principal's office knowing that what, you're next because you, your imagination just goes wild. And so imagine Adam sitting there. The serpent has been, been punished. Eve has been disciplined. And God looks at Adam and he says, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, Adam, you represented not just yourself, you represented all of creation. And when you fell, all of creation fell. Cursed is the ground because of you. I gave you this beautiful garden to work it and to keep it. Now for the rest of your life, your work will be hard and it will be toil. You still have to to carry out my mandate. Just now it's not going to be easy. And you've heard me say over and over again, what, nothing's easy now. And Adam, because of his fall, everything was cursed. If you think about Romans 8, it says all creation groans until the sons of men are revealed. That's because of the curse that came upon creation because of Adam. Now God came in, he promised that he would do something about it. And I think, honestly, that Adam and Eve, Eve believed God. Remember God said, that Eve, one of your children, one of your seed, will crush the head of the serpent. And her very first child, do you know what she named him? His name was Cain, but in Hebrew it means something like, here he is. That didn't work out too well. So how do we rate Adam? You'd have to say fail. And so God, in some sense, he gets more specific. Okay, Noah, everything is really messed up now. Your name is rest, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. He gives Noah the same mandate that he gave Adam. And how does Noah work out? Fail. He calls Abraham, and I wouldn't call Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac failures, really. But God gets specific. In other words, in Adam, it's a general, Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my presence. With Abraham, it gets a little bit more specific. In other words, I just imagine if I was God and saying, you know, those those guys don't get it. They don't get it. And so he goes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, okay, unless you're unclear about what it means to expand my presence... I'm calling you to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Not just the Jews. Remember, Abraham wasn't a Jew. He says, I'm calling you to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in your seed. And then he has Isaac. And then he has Jacob. And then with Jacob comes Israel. His name was Israel. But also the nation of Israel came. Now, did Abraham fail? I don't think he he failed. He believed God and it was considered righteousness. But you get to Israel and God takes things up a notch. And he says, all right, maybe a whole country or a whole nation can can fulfill my command. So Adam couldn't. Noah didn't. And so you get to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And it's almost as if God said, all right, your job, Israel, is the same job that Abraham had. It's the same job that Noah had. It's the same job that Adam had. It's to expand my presence and make me known to all the nations. But before you get started, let me give you a scale drawing, if you will. Let me give you like an architect's model. Have you ever gone someplace and you see the little architect's model? I'm amazed at the detail. That's what God does in Israel. He gives them first the tabernacle under Moses, and eventually he gives him the temple under Solomon. And what the temple is, that the physical temple, compared to the cosmos, is just a miniature scale model. It's like a little architect model. And God's saying, in case you guys don't understand what it means to to expand my presence to all creation, I'm going to build you a model. And you notice what it looks like. You have the Holy of Holies in the center. Then you have the holy place and you have the court of the Gentiles. And Israel's job was to be a light 
to the nations. They were supposed to draw all the nations unto themselves so all the nations could understand what it meant to live in the presence of God and then go out and fill the earth. And how did Israel do? Yeah, you guessed it. They failed. That God called Adam to carry out these mandates and he failed. God called Israel to carry out these mandates and they failed. Instead of seeing the temple as something that God had given them for everyone else so that the nations could be blessed, they saw it as their own particular blessing. In other words, they said, this house is for us and if you want to be like us, you can come in and if not, tough. And so what did God do ultimately? The temple was destroyed and Israel was dispersed and then things were quiet for about 400 years. And at that point, if you were someone who read your Bible and following along, you had to wonder what's going to happen. Did God just abandon us? Did he give up on us? Honestly, 400 years is a long time to wait. I don't like waiting for microwave popcorn. And yet, in 400 years, God broke his silence. And the silence, in effect, was broken with the cry of a baby. That's what we celebrate at Advent. I mean, we celebrate the future coming of Jesus actually more than anything else, but we also look back and say in the midst of our silence and our brokenness and our hopelessness, when God didn't, it seemed like he had abandoned us, he actually didn't. He actually became a man. You notice my little subtitle, if you want something done right, do it yourself. He called Adam to fulfill this mandate. He called Israel to fulfill the mandate. And they failed and they failed. And there's a sense in which Amos says, you know, if you want something done right, do it yourself. And so God and the person of his son becomes a man, Jesus. And so what do we know about Jesus? We know a lot. But primarily for today, what we know is that when we talk about expanding God's presence, that Jesus is the temple, that Jesus is God's priest, and that Jesus is the king. In other words, all of the things that were supposed to happen in Eden are summarized in the person and work of Jesus. Remember John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That doesn't mean that he just went camping with us or he came and pitched a tent and he lived in the same place. That language is, I think, made to, to make us think that God came and made his presence known among us just like he did with Moses. Except it wasn't in a tent anymore, it was in a person. And the person's name was Jesus. And then Jesus as the priest. We know he was the priest who offered a perfect sacrifice and he was the perfect sacrifice. But let me give you another spin on Jesus' priesthood from Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, after Jesus is baptized, he says in verse 12, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Did you catch the priestly work of Jesus there? What is he doing there? Why did that happen? You ever wonder why Jesus went to the wilderness as soon as he was baptized, before he does anything else? He goes to the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. You see, what Jesus is doing as the last Adam is he's going back to the woods, if you will, back to the garden that now is not a beautiful paradise. Now it's like overgrown and full of thorns and thistles. He goes back there and accomplishes what Adam could not in the Garden of Eden, Adam faced off against the temptation of Satan, and he lost. Jesus goes to the, back to the Garden. He faces the temptation of Satan not once, but three times, and he wins. We talked about in the book of Revelation that Jesus is winning, and he will win. But what we've also seen is that Jesus' victory started even before the cross. Before the cross, Jesus overcame the temptation of Satan, and how the original priest, Adam, should have had defeated 
the, the unclean animal and Satan and kept him out of the garden, Jesus actually did that. But he also came as the king because the very next verse says this. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus comes out of the woods. He has done what Adam could not do. And he says, now we can get this show started. Now the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the true king is here. The one who should have been a king, Adam should have been a king and done what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it instead. And Jesus then goes around preaching the kingdom of God and expanding his kingdom. We know the story. He lived the life that Adam should have lived, and he died the death that Adam should have died. He also lived the life that you should have lived, and he died the death that you should have died. And he rose from the dead, and when he rose from the dead, he then sent his spirit into those who followed him. And at that point, things basically went viral, right? That God, at that point is when God's presence began to spread throughout the earth like it had never been spread. And so it does that through this thing we call the church. So remember, this whole thing started about recovering or completing God's temple. And so we saw that Eden was the original temple, and then God gave Israel a model of the temple. Then Jesus becomes the temple. Then does anything else happen? Well, yeah. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you read this. Paul says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So the, the, the mission, the job of, of Jesus was to expand God's presence. His Spirit comes and, and dwells within the church. And when I say church, by the way, that's Christians. And now when Christians go and spread out, God's presence is expanding. And so that's why you see in Matthew 28, the Great Commission says what? Jesus tells his disciples to go into all the nations and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And in Acts 1, verse 8, remember what the last thing Jesus says? He says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So what is Jesus doing? It looks something like this. He calls the church now to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where he was crucified and rose to Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. Do you see what the goal is? And does that look like anything we've done so far this morning? That the goal of the gospel is that the presence of God would be spread throughout the whole earth. And that's the, the commission that Jesus gives his disciples. And you hear me all the time talking about being outwardly faced. The reason I talk about being outwardly faced is because that is what we were created to do. You and I were created to be outwardly faced. And by that, I don't mean just doing evangelism. And I don't mean just inviting people to church. I mean spreading the presence of God wherever you go. You see, there are implications here. And the first implication is this, is that we are priests. As we've looked at the book of Revelation, we've seen several times where we are called priests, those who follow Jesus at least, that they will be priests to my God. And at the end, we see that, that we are called priests in service to God. So what does it mean for you to be a priest in God's temple, if God's temple is now the church? What well, means this? It means that every priest has a specific job in the maintenance of the temple so that it might fulfill its mission. 
What do I mean by that? If, if the church now is God's temple, and I don't mean the building, I mean the people. If the church is God's temple that has a mission to spread God's, uh, the gospel and God's presence throughout the earth, what does it mean for you to be a priest? And I, I came upon uh, the book of Numbers this week as I was reading, and all of a sudden things clicked. You see, in the, in the book of Numbers, when I was in seminary, I had a professor, and he'd always tell us, when you read through your Bible, don't skip the genealogies. Right, I know I'm looking at you. A lot of you do that. I know. Um, if you read through, right, you, you know you can save 12 chapters in Chronicles. You're like, whew. I got to the book of Numbers in chapter 3, and it was the census of the Levitical priests. And I thought, oh, I got stuff to do today. I'm just going to skip this. And as I started to read it, because I felt guilty, all of a sudden, a lot of things became clear. Because if you read through the Levitical priests, it would say, you know, that, now these are the Kohathites, or these are the, the Gershonites, or whoever they are. And every one of the clans had a specific job in the temple. It would say the Kohathites, they were responsible for guarding the ark and the poles, and the other groups were, were responsible for guarding the, the tent. And they were, everyone had a job in God's temple. And without everyone doing their job, the mission could not be accomplished. And the same is true in our church. The same is true in every church. And so the question is, do you know where you fit in? A lot of people don't at church. A lot of the, the, the responsibility falls on leadership. A lot of it falls on you. And in other words, what I'm saying is that if you are here and you are a Christian, especially if you're a member of our church, by definition, there is something that you bring to the table that we cannot do without that's crucial for us being outwardly faced and expanding God's presence. Now, for some of you, maybe most of you, you, pro- you might not ever invite people because you're too shy. But ask yourself this, do I really understand that when I stand outside, the, like I see people walking by right now with, the, or, with those gaudy vests, right? That's a pretty humble job. Do you understand that because you're out there with a vest on, that someone can find a parking spot, they can come in and hear the gospel, and they can become Christians? In other words, you see the different things that you're actually doing in church, how they're crucial to the maintenance of the whole thing, that we can fulfill our mission. If you understand that you're a priest because of what Jesus has done, then you should begin to think about that if you haven't already. What's the best way to figure out where you fit in? My opinion is just try a bunch of stuff. You'd be surprised at the things you're gifted in and like. The other implication is that we are kings, and every king has a responsibility to rule and subdue the earth. And, that, and by that I mean expanding the presence of God. In, in other words, at some level, it means you should have a life. What do I mean by that? I mean that you should look and see, okay, I'm an engineer, or I'm a, I'm a, I'm a business owner, or I'm a doctor, or I'm a lawyer, or I'm a garbage man. Whatever it is that you look and say, part of my job as a king, reigning with Christ, is to work this job and to keep it. It's to worship and obey. It's to, to, to guard it and to serve. And In other words, that your, your job matters. And without wasting a lot of time today, I'm really excited about the classes we have coming up in January. Like if I went to, to Sunday school like I used to, I would have a hard time picking between one on welcoming the stranger and one that has to do with understanding what it means to work, to, to be a Christian. What, is it, what does it mean to rule and subdue the earth as someone who says they're a follower of Jesus? So I'd encourage you to participate in those. Finally, after what is probably the world's longest introduction, we come to the text for today. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. And I'm just going to hit a couple things because notice in the text of Revelation, you see what's interesting here is 
at the very beginning in chapter 21 when we started looking at this, this vision John's having, he said, I see new heavens and new earth, and then immediately started describing the new heavens and new earth in terms of a city that was like a garden that was shaped like a temple. And my deduction is this, is that the whole thing is a temple. And so what do we see when Eden is restored and God's presence is restored to his people? In verse 20, or chapter 22, it says, The angel showed me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing through the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on the either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the first thing you see in restored Eden at the end the very end of the Bible is this is that the tree of life from which we were banned in the beginning is now opened and you know if I had time we could talk about this the tree of life has actually multiplied there are lots of them and they they go along this this river of life but the point is is that that which was from which we were once banned now we have access to Remember Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God cast him from the garden and put two angels there to continue to guard the garden so that we wouldn't be able to partake of it now but because of the work of Jesus we are able to eat of the tree of life. And not just us but every tribe, tongue and nation. You notice it says its leaves come down for the healing of the nations. If this is the very end of time is there still healing that has to be done in the nations? Then there won't be. But remember, this is sort of now and not yet. The leaves even now come down for the healing of the nations. In other words, that the gospel of Jesus is the only thing that can help and bring healing to the nations. Second thing you see is there's no more curse. That the curse that Adam brought upon us was born on the cross by Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was as if this bomb of life began to take off. And the curse is now not there, which means in, in new heavens and new earth and in new Jerusalem, we'll still work. We'll still have a, a, something to, to work and to keep and to serve and to guard. But then it won't be toil. It will be our primary act of worship. And now, by the way, if you're a Christian, at least, your job is one of your primary acts of worship as well. Or it should be. Do you go to work thinking that? Ooh, I can't wait to get to worship this morning. I don't that much, to be honest with you. And I work here. But that's how it's going to be. Do you also see that we're priests and kings? It says at the end that we will reign with him. And it says that his servants will serve him. That's the language of priests. It also says uh, the goal of the whole Bible is that we will see his face in verse 4. It says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now think about that. In the, in the garden, Adam and Eve, we presume, had access to God's face one way or the other. He came to the garden to speak with them. And once they, they fell, then they were cast from the garden. Then after that, no one could see God's face. Remember, Moses had to be put in a cleft in a rock and said, maybe I'll see your backside, but I can't look upon your face and live. At the end of all time and in heaven, we will behold his face and we will be like him. Remember, First John says that. We will see him, we will be like him, for we will be as he is. And one of the, the grand things about heaven that just amazes me is that on one hand, Everyone there will be different and, and, and recognizable. On, on the other hand, every person there will look exactly like Jesus. And it strikes me, because I was thinking this, this week, as I was thinking through this, I thought of my own children. I have three daughters. And if you saw them walking down the street, they look enough not alike that you wouldn't necessarily peg them for sisters. In other words, all my children don't look alike. 
On the other hand, if, we were all to, if they were all together with me present, let's say at Dairy Queen, a couple times a week, there would be no question, I would guess, that you'd say all of them belong to him. In other words, they don't look like each other, but they all look like me. And that's what we look forward to in this great city of God, in this restored Eden. All of God's children being there and all recognizable, but they all look like him. That's what the name on the forehead is about. And finally, it says that there will be no more night. They'll need no light of a lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever. So we've talked about this whole idea of light before, that, that there won't be need for any light. Now, it's probably symbolic, to be honest with you. It's, it's either symbolic or in the, in the new heavens and new earth, there aren't any sun or moon or stars or anything. It has, I think, more to do with the fact that God's presence is so glorious that it will, it will engulf everything else. But you know what's even more amazing to me and more of a mystery is, do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples when he was here? And I'm going to end with this. I love when we do communion sometimes. I, I love to, to, to mess with people. When, when we do the communion where they walk down, right? We, every now and then we'll do that. Because what it's fun to do, and I'll do this to some of you in the future, I promise, is they come down and usually if the husband comes first, I'll say, Jesus said that I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And they'll take their bread and they'll dip it and walk on. And then the wife comes up and I'll say, Jesus says that you are the light of the world. And it stops them every time. Huh? Who's the light of the world? Is Jesus the light of the world or am I the light of the world? Jesus says that you are the light of the world. And he followed immediately upon that by saying, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. In other words, he didn't say church on the hill couldn't be hidden. He said a city on a hill because remember we've talked about in the book of Revelation, you are the city of God. You are the temple of God. You are God's dwelling place. And until the very end, you also are the light of the world. In other words, you and I are the ones who are charged with spreading the gospel of Jesus throughout the darkness that this world brings. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would, um, you would wake us up where we are sleepy. I pray that you pull things together maybe that we hadn't gotten before, but I pray mostly that you would make us... Um, more conscious of what Jesus has done for us and is doing for us and will do for us and as a result what we ought to be doing in the world. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.